0: Orphan Black The Next Chapter is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Guevaris as Felix and Evelyn Brochu as Delphine. Season two picks up where season one left off, with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace. And when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, will be available wherever you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe so you won't miss when new episodes drop. Or visit realm.fm for more information.
1: I'm Shutter Curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The history of horror uncut is built with the full raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. So, in some cases, Eli leads the talk itself, and in others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sayenga steps in. In a lot of these conversations, you're going to return to the idea of horror as operatic and as heightened, and why it needs to live in that space. And there might not be a better filmmaker or writer better suited to talk about that than Brian Fuller. Brian Fuller won acclaim creating idiosyncratic series like Pushing Daisies and Dead Like Me, but then he reached this apex, this like stunning new height in Hannibal. That was, of course, his reimagining, his stylish, sensuous, profound vision of Thomas Harris's iconic creation— Hannibal Lecter. Here, he speaks eloquently and at length to that perspective and how he reimagined Hannibal through the lens of these sick, sumptuous visuals, humanity musings, and as a member of the queer community. Fuller also speaks to his personal experiences with the genre, with death. He talks about Friday the 13th. Thankfully, he talks about Friday the 13th, part two, and he's particularly voluble on the psychology of terror. It's fascinating. Here now is Brian Fuller. Listen up, ghouls.
2: Um, tell me who you are,
1: please. I'm Brian Fuller, writer-producer.
2: So, Brian, what does the horror genre let you do that perhaps conventional drama does not?
3: One of the most beautiful things about the horror genre is that the stakes are implicitly high because you're dealing with life and death, usually. And that gives horror a certain operatic quality to it where there is no choice but to survive and thrive or be one of the body count.
2: And so how have you applied that in your work?
3: Well, one of the things uh, I've done in a couple of different shows is really candy coat death in a way that takes it through almost a childlike perception of what it is. That probably comes from, as a child, I went to a lot of funerals and I was hyper aware of the adults making death uh non-terrifying thing for me to understand at that moment. So I never saw death so much as the horrific aspect of it as much as it was a celebration of life because it's the punctuation of the sentence that gives you the information that you need to understand what that life was, what that sentence was, and how it was told.
2: Is horror ultimately about confronting mortality?
3: I believe almost Everything is about confronting mortality. So horror certainly has the stakes on what it is to confront a life or death situation. In fact, that's what most horror stories hinge on: is are you going to make it through the night?
2: Are you familiar with Ernest Becker's the, the denial of death? What he lays down in there? A lot no. Of it, oh, oh you like it? Um, a lot of it draws in sort of post Freudian theory in fact and uh, how the creative impulse is basically all about uh, the denial of death, like suppressing the knowledge of death, and then how in certain personalities it has to express itself, like in, in other words, you're not repressing successfully.
3: <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, so for his theory, can you swing that to
2: Well, it's that? also saying essentially that you're like, uh, you know, a supposedly successful person in society would be somebody who's able to completely suppress their fear of death. However, that person would also not necessarily be a creative person, because the right. creative people are the people who have enough neurosis that they can't forget the knowledge of death and the fact that there's a sword hanging over your head at all times.
3: It is interesting to be hyper-aware of the sword hanging over your head at all times, particularly now in a socio-political climate where we could be bombed at any moment. And I became aware of that all too clearly When bomber jets fly over Los Angeles and you hear that rumble and you turn to the people that you're in the room with and go like, well, this is it. Nice knowing you. And there's something so terrifying about how easy it is to say, well, I guess this is it.
2: Speaking of which, said horror films or metaphors for what's going on in society? and uh, So what are they expressing right now?
3: Well, I think you know, if you look at a horror movie like Get Out, for instance, that has such a fantastic resonance with where we are in society right now because of racial issues writ large and also deconstructed using horror tropes that give you a new perspective on a character situation being a black person in white America or somebody who is non-white in white America. That horror film said something very interesting about race and that race is, in strange ways, coveted as it is despised. And that was a fresh take on a racial story that made it uniquely horrific.
2: Are you able to use the genre to explore social issues or gender issues, sexual politics issues in certain ways that may be kind of under necessarily people's conscious perception of what you're doing? Well,
3: what was interesting in in adapting Thomas Harris's Hannibal novels for, for the small screen was there had been so many adaptations previously, whether you're looking at Michael Mann's uh, Manhunter or Brett Ratner's Red Dragon, they were two white, straight guys approaching material that was deeply complicated and complex psychologically, because you're dealing with two men drawn to each other in a very deep, intimate way, And what none of them dared to approach, probably because their own internalized homophobia, was that this could become psychosexual or at least threaten a psychosexual breach of sort that a lot of straight guys are very uncomfortable with. But I'm not.
2: So tell me a little, since we're sort of jumping into Hannibal right now, what was your brief when you accepted uh, the mission of adapting those novels for television?
3: The impulse for telling the Hannibal tale again was relatively simple, and I was approaching it very much as a gay man looking at one of the most iconic horror characters and horror novels written by Thomas Harris. So I looked at the material and, having been a big fan of Red Dragon and read it several times, and loved indulging in the purple prose of what Thomas Harris was creating between Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter. For me, the thing that Fascinated me and partly as a gay man was heterosexual friendships between two straight men, and what happens when two straight men become enamored with each other? Where do lines blur, and where do their own identities blur and that was That was the fascination as, you know, as a gay man looking at straight male friendships. I'm fascinated because I'm on the outside of that, and I felt like, oh, I want to explore that. I want to get into how men love each other in a non-sexual capacity, how they bond, and what are those things that they can't separate from themselves and the other person.
2: So also you're inheriting something with such a monument basically in horror and in particular silence of the lambs, you know, not so much the films that followed basically, but in building up uh, Hannibal Lecter as this iconic presence and then reinterpreting that work and making it work within a TV series.
3: Well, one of the things that was so interesting and speaking of Science of the Lambs, which is a psychosexual mind trip in many ways and there were those who protested the film when it first came out being disappointed in the vilification of a trans person For me, as a a gay man watching the film and reading the book, I loved seeing a different representation of a trans person. But I'm exposed to trans people in my daily life. So it was clear to me that it was an uncharacteristic representation so many trans people who do not see themselves represented in film or television saw this one as kind of the sole representative and does that give a skewed image of that demographic? I'm fascinated with *Science of the Lambs for all of its psychosexual button pushing. You know, back to the, the earlier question, Anthony Hopkins was so iconic in that role. I remember seeing it and watching this strange seduction and also... Being keenly aware of how queer Hannibal Lecter is as a character, not necessarily sexually, but he's an odd duck, and he approaches life with specificity and tenacity and meticulousness, and that takes a certain kind of mind that I would... As a gay man, I relate to. So the daunting quality of, oh gosh, are we going to go into Hannibal Lecter territory again after Anthony Hopkins has so iconically portrayed the character, didn't really occur to me so much as all of those jewels buried in those pages that hadn't been dug up and explored for an audience, that's the first thing that that popped into mind. Is like there was so much that hasn't been done that is in those books waiting to be explored, and that was very exciting for me because if I felt like there was nothing left to tell, that they had told everything, and every single treasure had been dug up and explored, then it wouldn't have been exciting, but I felt like there was a treasure trove underneath those sands, and it was up to me and the team to to dig them out.
2: The series also... Had incredible high style visually and sonically, and uh, it's very lush. You mentioned operatic, and it had that tone, seemed also very reflective of Lecter and his milieu. Yeah,
3: well, that was Mm -hmm. the reason that I wanted the show to be so visually aggressive and highly stylized is that the show was called Hannibal, so it needed to be as stylish as the character. Himself, and that was the importance of bringing in a food stylist who was going to make cannibalism delectable, so that we could be in Hannibal Lecter's point of view. When you look at that bacon wrapped heart, you think that looks delicious. You don't think, boy, that person didn't run fast enough.
2: <laughs> Actually, yes, yeah, one of the things I want to mention specifically about that, yeah, the series did have a lot of what uh, what they call food porn. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Except there's a certain irony, of course, implicit in that, and also a deeper message, I think, that you're trying to give. How were you using the horror and also this, that situation, those visuals, to kind of get a message about consumption for
3: us? At the heart of the Hannibal Lecter story, is consumption, and it is about devouring those who you feel are less than you. And that was the fantastic godlike aura that Hannibal had, because he does feel that he is far superior to the rest of human beings. And in the television series, we made a special point to illustrate Hannibal Lecter as more than human and perhaps less than godly, Essentially, it all came out of the first meeting with Maz Mickelson, who said, He's the devil, right? And I said, Well, he's a devil. And I was like, Wait, what if he were the devil? What if we were able to tell this story so that both of those things were true? He was a man, a psychopath, a cannibal, but he is also a fallen angel who fell in love with mankind and is now roasting them over his own interpretation of justice and morality. And that felt like it gave the character a broader bandwidth than was in the novels, but it also romanticized and made poetic his attraction to mankind, specifically through Will Graham. And Will Graham as this empath who is so sensitive to everything it is to be human seemed like a dish that was hard to refuse for Hannibal Lecter. And
2: he liked playing with his food. He
3: likes to play with his food, yes, yes. Well, when the food looks like Hugh Dancy. Who doesn't want to play with it?
2: This notion of Hannibal, what is Hannibal's code, basically? What is his sense of justice?
3: The simple code for Hannibal Lecter that struck me was eat the rude. If you're a pig of a human being, you deserve to be somebody's bacon. And that felt so relatable because who amongst us haven't in our, a charged moment wished instant death and edibility on somebody who was utterly obnoxious and rude? And Hannibal just has the wherewithal to, to carry out <laughs> and the skill to cook them up yum.
2: If you could talk about the influence that character has had, I, one one could say that he introduced this trope of the kind of almost like you know genius supervillain psychopath. Right. Although one could also argue that that goes back to Fritz Lang and Doctor. Yeah, yeah, way back. Yeah. Since then, has that kind of character type been overused lately in horror or well I think I
3: think the character of the elegant villain, the person who is an elitist, is striking a chord with a lot of America where we feel in our culture, the threat of elitism. We feel the curse of anti-intellectualism. There is a movement in America, in this culture, that's been prevalent since, since the 70s and the 80s when the educational system was under attack and for the most part, dissolved to create an uneducated society that is quick to react. So that uneducated society is now terrified of elitism. They're terrified of intellectuals. So Hannibal Lecter, for them, must be their worst fucking nightmare (laughs) because he is an intellectual, and he is an elitist, and he is an aesthete, and he is a satirist. For anybody who has disdain for someone who tries or reaches those people should lie in fear of the Hannibal Lectures of the World because he doesn't value their lives because they have chosen not to live. They have chosen to fear, and fear for Hannibal is delicious.
2: So he's sort of an intellectual revenge fantasy?
3: For me, that's what it really became, was an intellectual revenge fantasy in many ways. Eat the rude. And as somebody who likes to to dress up and, and put on a tie, I related to his frustration with his fellow man.
2: <laughs> and, of course, Trump famously said uh, how much he likes the uneducated. There is...
3: The uneducated have been weaponized in in this country, and there has been a systemic dissolving of the educational system for the last 50 years. It has been under attack, and people in government like people to be uneducated because they will believe whatever you tell them. And if you weaponize those folks who are blind believers, you've got... A Trump campaign.
2: Is using horror or the genre. Are you able to reach or sort of slide in, you know, messages uh, to people who might otherwise not uh, engage with them?
3: Well, horror is 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 a fantastic delivery mechanism for ideas. In my experience on Hannibal, I was a meat eater before I did the show, and the more I worked on the show, and the more I looked at cannibalism, and eating animals, I became less comfortable with eating meat. So I failed Hannibal in that regard because his activity and his willingness to eat people made me much more sensitive to eating animals because I like animals more than people generally.
2: Can't give up sushi, that's the problem. I'm, I,
3: I'm pescatarian. Yeah. What has been fascinating about you know, not eating land animals anymore or limiting how many land animals I eat, when I do have an experience where I go to somebody's home and I don't want to be rude and I'll eat whatever is in front of me, it's easier for me to imagine that the meat on the plate in front of me is a human being than a helpless animal. Because human beings, I can imagine having it coming. And most animals I can't.
2: There used to be a perception, I think, that uh, horror doesn't work on television, despite the fact that The X-Files had some really kick-ass horror. Kojak,
3: episode. The Night Stalker. Co- the Night Stalker, Jack. yeah. Kojak. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah, I said Kojak. Which, again, well, Kojak would have been an interesting take in The Night Stalker. Is that changing? Is that perception changing?
3: I feel like the perception of horror not working on television was just that, a perception, until somebody came along and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that horror does work on television and that somebody was The Walking Dead. After The Walking Dead was such a success, then executives at networks began to open their minds to the possibility, and before The Walking Dead, I can't tell you how many horror shows that I pitched and heard from executives that, no, we've done the research people don't want horror in their homes. That just proves that a lot of research is bullshit. The zombies opened the gates for horror, and I don't think that Hannibal would have had a place on television if it weren't for those doors being bashed down by hordes of zombies.
2: Hannibal had some, you know, really terrifically bloody imagery and else just macabre over the <laughs> Just kind of amazing scenes, I was, were you, surprised at how far you were able to push it? In retrospect,
3: I was surprised at how far we were able to push it, but during the time when we were making it, we were so collaborative with NBC that if I knew a big horror sequence was coming up and I knew we had to do it justice, I would call Broadcast Standards and Practices and I would speak to a woman named Joanna Jameson and I would say, so, we have this scene coming up where a guy's going to cut off his face, feed it to the dogs, and maybe eat his nose himself. How do we do that? And without blinking, and these are some of the funniest exchanges that you will find in the industry are these standards and practice?" notes exchanges. She said simply make the blood a little blacker Keep it as dark as you possibly can, and you can get away with a lot. Utilize the shadows and let people imagine the horror. The tint of red in blood is a thing that will set off the broadcast standards and practices police. So just by making that a little darker, a little ruddier, a little browner, a little blacker, you can show as much as you want. And... We did. There was an episode where we had people whose backs were flayed open and their flesh spread out to look like angel wings, and they were naked, and they were in a prayer position kneeling at the foot of a bed, and they had exposed buttocks. And standards and practices said, we can't show bare asses on our TV. And I said, okay, what if we filled the ass cracks with blood? And so you didn't actually see a crack. You just saw a swath of blood coming down their back over their buttocks. And she was like, great, do that. And we did, and then it aired. And it's a fascinating, intricate process of actually kind of relatively binary limitations. If you do this, we'll block you. If you just stop short
2: of that, we won't
3: block you. Like, don't show us bright red blood. And we were like, we can make the blood a little darker and show you more.
2: Do you have your limits of what you want to show or? I do, I cannot
3: process a rape story as entertainment. I find it hard to engage that violation as anything but a violation. Whereas somebody being brutally murdered I can accept that. I can revel in it. I can have a lot of fun with that. But the idea of something that is so intimate and beautiful and personal as sex and sexuality, which should be something that is precious for every human being, I cannot stomach the betrayal of rape and the violation of rape. I find it utterly distasteful. I don't want to produce it with my imagination.
2: What did you think of uh, Silence of the Lambs? Where does Silence of the Lambs stand in the horror pantheon, and what makes it uh, what it is?
3: Silence of the Lambs, for me, is a perfect film. And what makes it a perfect film is not only the resonance of Jodie Foster's performance and Anthony Hopkins' performance, but... Jonathan Demme's directing. He puts you in those people's seats. It was an exercise of point of view. The eye lines are always either right down the middle or on the frame of the camera lens, and it gives you an unsettling experience of walking in Clarice Starling's shoes and feeling so intimately connected to her. So for me one of the reasons that it it snuck in to the mainstream as a horror film is that it was so elegantly directed and well told and it kind of shirked the in your face occasionally vulgarities of the horror genre and painted them with a much finer brush, a much more personal brush, and a much more intimate brush that made it a story that was about being human as opposed to a story that was about the horrors of the world. And that's where I think it transcended the genre and appealed to so many because – Really, you have a protagonist in Jodie Foster who is infinitely relatable, and you are with her in that journey. I think you can take how well-executed Signs of the Lambs was as a film, take that vocabulary that Jonathan Demme expanded on and how he tells those stories, and then look back at other horror films and see how they're doing essentially the same thing with different tools, with cast or with film directors, but it not only transcended the horror genre, it validated it. And it said, this this is actually what's happening in all of those horror movies that you can't see. But now that you watch Science of the Labs and you see how meticulously the story is told, you can apply that learned vocabulary to Halloween and see just how brilliant that film is. And, And using a lot of the same stylistic, intimate, point of view approaches directorially that made it sing and made it relatable. And you also had a fantastic script by Deborah Hill, and that brought those young women to life and made them relatable. And so I think with Science of the Lambs, having a fantastic female protagonist that is brought to life by Jodie Foster gave it a life that allowed people who do not appreciate the horror genre to appreciate that performance. And that performance was the introduction for a lot of people who are uncomfortable with horror to actually sit back and enjoy it.
2: Seven was probably not, did not get the incredible accolades of Silence of Lambs, and yet that was also a very influential film as well.
3: With the film Seven, you had a director, not unlike Jonathan Demi, taking the material to a level that the audience did not assume you could go to with a horror film, giving it legitimacy and elegance in the filmmaking. Seven is a beautifully made film. Every frame of that picture is gorgeous. And there's something about aesthetics being a fantastic delivery mechanism for horror. And you see how David Fincher wanted to make sure everything was gorgeous. So even when you were looking at something horrifying, like an emaciated man strapped to a bed surrounded by air fresheners, it was a gorgeous graphic image. And then there was horror within that frame. So once again, I think beauty is a wonderful way to tell a horror story. And David Fincher's films are gorgeous. And it was the elegance of the structure of that film, the, the elegance of the performances. It is an elegant film, but what happens within those frames are horrific. I still can't get Leland Orser with the razor blade dildo strapped onto him shuddering in a corner saying, please, please just take this off of me, and thinking, God, that's a beautifully designed sequence. (laughs) And also Leland Orser is an amazing actor. There's something about the genre that because of its low-budget beginnings, People seem surprised when there's dedicated craft in telling a horror story, and those well-made films tend to break out a bit. and. They invite you into lesser known films that you will understand are just as well made in a different way as someone who enjoys cinema and enjoys aggressive cinema. It's a wonderful introduction that those big horror films serve for the public to let them know that there is actually wonderful work going deeper and deeper into the horror genre. You just have to come with us, it'll be okay.
2: Of course, the protagonist, the antagonist, I suppose, in uh, Seven is sort of the opposite of Hannibal Lecter, although at the same time, he's also an evil super genius mastermind. Right.
3: Right. You know, it was interesting to compare John Doe to Hannibal Lecter because they are both sanctimonious in their approach. They are both punishers, and they are both people who are studying the human condition and realize the frailties of psychology, forcing victims to suffer their own egos, essentially. That was also a boogeyman that had his sights on you. And John Doe could come after any of us for our greed, our avarice, our lust. And Hannibal just comes after you if you're rude, which I can handle not being rude, but I don't know if I can handle not being human.
2: Which leads me into the Saw film. Right.
3: I remember when Saw first came out, it was back when Netflix delivered discs to your mailbox, and I got the Saw DVD, and my video closet is in the hallway outside the living room, so I put in the DVD for Saw and was four feet away from the living room to sit down and watch it. But on the menu for the DVD for Saw is just nonstop screaming. So by the time I stepped four feet into the living room, I was like, uh, already it's too much screaming. <laughs> I think I put on Monster Squad <laughs> instead. Speaking
2: of serial killers, tell me about your childhood.
3: It was interesting. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and when I was pubescent, there was a serial killer that was stalking the Lewis Clark Valley. At first, folks assumed that this person was the Green River Killer and had just made it east from Seattle. Then that seemed to be unlikely. It started with a couple of disappearances of young women who were my age. And then their bodies started showing up dismembered and wrapped up in plastic. And they were tossed off a bridge. And I would ride my bicycle out to the bridge and look at the bloodstains on the overpass. And there was this sad, romantic quality to a young person who is just figuring out what it is to be alive and then to see peers who were murdered and that they don't get to be alive anymore. There was the stakes of there is a killer in our midst. There is a brand, somebody who's driving a brown van picking up young women and dismembering them. It brought a strange awareness of the fragility of life at the same time of the indifference of life because life just kept on going and life didn't really stop too long to mourn the deaths of of those young women who were murdered. I think for me as a creative growing up in that environment, it skewed how we react to grief and it also skewed how we gloss over grief. And what became most fascinating to me in all of it was life just kept on going. We were trick-or-treating without our parents while there was a murderer who was killing kids running around the town, the Lewis-Clark Valley. So it's very Lynchian, because it was in the Pacific Northwest, and David Lynch I think, grew up in Spokane, or was born in Spokane, Washington. So it does definitely skew your sensitivity to such things in a way that perhaps made me process them more efficiently as as a storyteller. As a result, I was absolutely obsessed with Halloween and Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So these were all films that I wonder if I would have been as drawn to if I weren't living in a town that was lurking in the shadow of a serial killer. I may have, I may not have, but the the thing that always struck me as fascinating about the horror genre is that it it is opera. Instead of these teenagers dying of consumption, they are dying at the blade of a mad killer, whether it's Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger. There is such a larger-than-life plight for the characters in a horror movie that make them resonate with me much more dramatically than a romance.
2: Since we're talking opera and operatic, uh, do you like the films of Dario Argento? Oh, yeah,
3: yeah. One of the many things that I love about Dario Argento's films is that they are so incredibly stylized and so broad with their emotions and just thinking of Suspiria and how that tale of witches in a dance studio unfolds in such a personal way through the young woman who comes to the school to—I'm trying to remember her name—
2: Oh boy, I can't remember the character's There's, name, there's one the one directress?
3: Harper. Yeah, <laughs> Jessica Harper, yes. The thing that I love about Dario Argento and that was a, a major influence on Hannibal was the stylization of his horror. He wanted to make sure that everything was a dynamic image, and whether it's Profondo Rosso or Suspiria, everything is gorgeous, and everything is over the top. Everything is operatic, for me, that was another broadening of my vocabulary and my appreciation of horrors. as I was growing up. When I saw those films, at first I didn't know what to do with them. And then I just got seduced, whether it was the Goblin soundtracks or the dramatic tension that was always present because people were dying. It felt like in Dario Argento movies that people are having a reasonable reaction to the scenarios around them, and they're so over the top. I think with American horror, people try to, like, contain it and make it as human and small in their reactions unless they're, they're at the other end of a blade. But people tend to get very methodical in American horror movies once once they get into a group and realize what they're up against. And... What I love about Dario Genter movies is that they're not afraid to freak out.
2: How did you consume horror product when you were uh, a boy?
3: As a child, as a young man, consuming horror product, it was primarily through magazines. It was Fangoria was a big influence. Uh, Starlog, you know, crossed over into some horror. As they were developing their brand at Fantastic, all of those magazines were really how I first became exposed to so many horror films. And then I would read the novelizations. So the novelizations of The Fog and Halloween and Friday the 13th and Black Christmas were all things that I read before seeing the films. I'd actually, in most of those cases, had the soundtracks before I had seen the film because I couldn't get into an R-rated movie. So I'd either, I would either read the book, order the soundtrack, have the experience that I was cultivating through the pages of these magazines... And then when they finally came to home box office or Showtime and I could see them in my homes, it was like seeing cousins that were familiar because I I, I knew them and heard so much about them that when I finally saw them, it felt like watching a Disney film because they were so familiar and familial to me and how I wanted to operate with my (laughs)
2: entertainment.
3: So thank God for those magazines and thank God for novelizations and thank God for soundtracks.
2: Did they ever... Fail to live up to what you imagined? (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, at
3: that time when I was really developing my love for horror, we as human beings uh, neurologically are in a state of high absorption, low criticism. So, no. They were all fantastic. I loved, I I was never disappointed because my criticism was very low and my absorption was very high. I just consumed and I would tell friends the tale of Friday the 13th who couldn't get into movies. I would have campfires where I would tell them, like, break down the story and tell what was going to happen to Marcy when she went to the restroom and got a hatchet in the face. But uh, uh, really taking advantage of spreading the horror nerddom to my friends by being the one who sought out the material that we couldn't see and say, like, well, we can't go to the movies and see it, but I can tell you everything that happens. That was probably my first taste of storytelling.
2: Since you mentioned Friday the Thirteenth, because some people just don't want any like uh, that's not like one regarded quite in the same way. Come at me, because them. I will I
3: will argue <laughs> that shit Come into the me. ground. Okay,
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I love Friday the Thirteenth. I think it's
2: so. Tell me what what makes that. Uh, why does that work for you?
3: One of the things that the original Friday the 13th do for me personally, and and why they are so effective, in, in their storytelling is that they are about good kids, trying to go to camp and work with good kids. We have seen an evolution of horror where it's become so easy to make the characters assholes so we can enjoy watching them die. And one of the things that Friday the 13th did for me was, I liked all of those characters. I liked all of those people who were there to work with kids And the fact that the urban legend quality of the first Friday the 13th, that there was a boy who drowned, the mythology of summer camp is so well exploited in that that I didn't feel like it was a ripoff of Halloween. I felt like there were writers and actors, and having talked to many of the actors in Friday the 13th, so much of what they did was improvised. So you can see the characters, each of those actors taking on... a persona that then they are developing with the improvisational scenes between the rest of the cast because the script was relatively thin. So you had Brenda, who was a vegan, and you had, you know, another character who was doing, Marcy, who was doing, uh, who was an old Hollywood fan and was doing uh, impersonations, a lot of impersonations in that film. But what makes Friday the 13th a classic is the reveal of Mrs. Voorhees. And that a mother was driven mad by her child drowning and seeing the world ignore it and go by and think that they can just restart and go on with their lives. It's the manifestation of grief is actually very poetic and relatable that I found the reveal of Mrs. Voorhees is what makes Friday the 13th a classic film. There's, you know, some unevenness beforehand, but really it's a fairly well-structured film.
2: Uh, What do you think about the sequels?
3: I love Friday the 13th Part 2 just as much as I love Friday the 13th Part 1. I thought that it did everything that a sequel should do. I love the Amy Steele character. I love that they brought in an aspect of psychology to this. Here is a character in the first film, everyone's trying to survive— Uh, as they're being knocked off one by one by a killer that they don't know, and then you reveal it's the mother of this drowned boy. So then to do the next film that the drowned boy survived and now he's avenging his mother is a a relatively simple inversion of a plot that is effective, but where it excelled for me was a bright, fresh cast led by Amy Steele who was magnetic, and also giving her character the wherewithal to think about the scenario that they've been plunged into if this boy drowned, if this woman was beheaded for trying to avenge, wouldn't the young Jason Voorhees, who has risen from the lake to avenge his mother, there is a responsibility to understand him as well as fear him. And that was something that I felt Friday the 13th Part Two did so well, is to recontextualize the story to a psychological sensitivity that then went out the window because he's gonna kill you anyway, but she still tried. And I thought that was a fantastic escalation. Part three is the beginning of the blue days of Friday the 13th that really hit its peak with part five. Part three, you know, you have the Harold character who's running the grocery store on the side of the road. He's literally taking a shit. And so you're like, it's a different kind of entertainment than the first two, which were relatively, to seeing characters taking shits, uh, sophisticated. And then the cast wasn't as strong. But the filmmaking and the wide aspect ratio for Friday 13 Part 3 is one of the reasons that it still is an enjoyable film for me, because there's actually some really great frames in that film that uh, Steve Miner wasn't just resting on his laurels. He was trying to do something different. I don't think he necessarily had the strongest cast to get him through, but there's a lot to enjoy about part three. Some terrifying moments. I would say it has some of the best kills in the... (laughs) that we're quantifying these things is hilarious, but it has some of the the best kills in the genre with the, the guy doing the handstand getting cut in half, Fox getting impaled with the pitchfork, the ending with Jason clawing at the window and hearing the sound of his nails on the window as Dana Kimmel's character is in the the lake hallucinating is one of the most terrifying images in Friday the 13th film history so there's a lot going on for part three it's it's, it's where it started to wobble a bit Part four, I would say, was a great experience for me growing up at the time because I thought the cast was fantastic. You had Matthew Starr getting his head crushed in a in a shower, and you had Crispin Glover getting a hatchet in the head and a corkscrew in the hand. So the the cast was actually really fantastic in part four. It grew a little tedious when the body count started to to engage, but there were there was a lot of fun to be had there, and so. I enjoy 3 and 4 a little less than 1 and 2, but I still enjoy them quite a bit. Part five is where everything went off the hinges in a fantastic way because they brought in a filmmaker who was mostly versed in pornography and brought that sensibility to the Friday the 13th franchise and also had the poison chalice of telling a non Vorhees Friday the 13th story, which is just not a battle you're going to win. There was some fun stuff in that film, but it's one of the weak, well, I was going to say it was one of the weaker, but, boy, do we have some bumps down the road. Six, for me, is also a favorite. One, two, and six are some of my favorites of the Friday the 13th genre because it took a whole new attitude that had this—we turned Jason Voorhees into a supernatural creature in part six. The first films, he was a force to be reckoned with, but he died. And Six brought him back as the Instructable Jason that became the character that we're all associating with the Friday the 13th series. Now, it also had a lot of humor and a a very bright cast. I love Six. And, And Zombie Jason, it's hard to beat. And you have an Alice Cooper song. So, all great ornaments on that Christmas tree. Seven was an interesting diversion. I remember the marketing campaign for Seven. And it was essentially Carrie versus... Jason and I found that very exciting. It was an uneven film uh, with uneven performances, but I still I still enjoyed it. There's something about that urban legend of Jason Voorhees as the monster in the woods that is a tragic hero and and I think one of the things that makes Jason so endearing is that he is a child who is on the spectrum like, on the deep end of the spectrum, lost his mother and went through that pain. And he was essentially, you feel for him because he is he is still that angry child who lost his mother. And that's the appeal of the character. And that's why he's so rooted for when he goes up against Freddy Krueger, you're rooting for the child, not the child molester, which is how the Alabama uh, Senate race should go.
0: <laughs>
3: Don't vote for the child molester.
2: Let's talk a little about Pushing Daisies. Okay, <laughs> how it approaches uh, the the undead. How did you come at that? Basically, what's a, it's sort of a unique spin on uh, the zombie. <laughs> well,
3: Pushing Daisies uh, was originally conceived as a spinoff to Dead Like Me. Uh, Dead Like Me was a show that I did about a young woman who dies and becomes a grim reaper. And as she's touching people to release their souls before violent deaths so they don't experience the trauma, she notices that there's this guy who's touching people and, and bringing them back to life. And he was originally designed as a foil for the George character in uh, Dead Like Me. And then when I left Dead Like Me, I just put the idea in my pocket. And essentially what I wanted to do is a horror show that the entire family could watch. And I wanted to have fantastic corpses and talking zombies and also do something a little bit different with the zombie genre where they're intelligent zombies and could articulate and have instant recall of their lives to solve the problem. So really it was about how do I take my love for horror and make it into an ABC show <laughs> that, uh, that they'll pay me to make. The romance of it and the obsession with death and the price that we pay to live all felt like things that were aspects of horror films that I adored, and I wanted to twist them around a little bit so to fool the the network executives into believing that they were making Amelie, but they were actually making something much darker.
2: Well, I noticed even in, um, looking it up, like on Amazon or whatever, it's described as, you know, uh, a crime procedural and fantasy. Right. You know.
3: A forensic fairy tale is how they, they tried to, to market it. I was fascinated with this man who couldn't touch the things that he loved. And I suppose as a gay man who grew up right smack dab in the middle of the AIDS epidemic and and my testicles dropped when AIDS was decimating the gay community. I feared as a child if I masturbated and got my own semen and a cut on my finger, I could give myself AIDS because that was how poor the education was about that. I guess the idea of... Loving something and not being able to touch them came from that in my own kind of, without ever having sex, I was terrified that I could get AIDS because no one was telling anybody how it was contracted and how it was spread. So as a little kid who's starting to masturbate and starting to figure out what is sexually attractive and that thing that I'm attracted to being told, Over and over that it will kill you. If you express yourself sexually, you will die. And it'll be a horrible, lonely, rotting death. So, a happy story about a pie maker (laughs) who can't touch the things he loved felt like a, a way to wrestle with... My own interpretations of of sexuality and sexual expression because also growing up in a small town where who knows what my father would have done if he found out I was gay. The secrets that, that you have to keep and the denial that you have to put yourself through denying your own humanity and your own sexuality and your own sexual expression just to make it by in a world I could relate to a character who just wanted to make pie because it was easier and I don't want to worry about relationships because it's too hard and they might kill me and I am terrified of them and then being forced to love somebody that he can't touch and deal with that and, and crawl over those barriers felt like an extrapolation of what it was for me as a pubescent horror fan being terrified of sex because it was killing everybody.
2: Let's talk a little about your um, psychoanalytic background. <laughs> <laughs> and in particular, how that relates to what we were talking about, aliens. Right.
3: Growing up in a small town and loving horror movies and science fiction films, I never thought that that was something that I could do that felt like it was a magical thing that magical people in magical places did. And I could only watch. Not feeling that storytelling and filmmaking and television making was a real possibility for me. I was going to pursue a career in psychology. And so I went to a local community college, started taking high-level psychology courses, and one of those courses was experimental psychology. And in this experimental psychology class, the edict was to design an experiment, and my experiment was, do you enjoy a film more as a popcorn experience, or do you get more out of it as a viewer if you understand the psychological subtext of what you're seeing? And I used the film Alien as a case study because that film, speaking of growing up in small-town America, whenever my mom went to the grocery store, I grabbed the Alien photo novel that was in the magazine rack, and I just sat there and poured over every image because it was frame and frame and frame of what the movie was. So I got to look at the production design very deeply and meticulously. I wanted to see if an audience would enjoy an alien film more if they understood the themes in place. And you have a mother who is in charge of a small family who doesn't care about them and is willing to sacrifice them to a penis, a penis-headed monster who comes into their life through rape. Cain is raped by the facehugger. He was forced to bear the child of a rape. And the mother allows it through the surrogacy of Ash, who is is taking care of her children in her absence, but she is an absentee mother. Looking at the production design, and I believe so much of the disturbing qualities of the Alien film are due to H.R. Giger blending biomechanical horror to something very simple, the disillusionment and the abandonment of the family unit. If you look at the alien ship, it is fallopian tubes filled with eggs, in it's cargo bay. And when you are going into this environment, you are vulnerable to the world that is outside of the family unit. So if you go outside the family unit, you will encounter horrors, and you will bring that back to the family unit, and the family unit will die because of that. And if you look at... The production design and how sensual it was with the vaginal palm of the face hugger, out of which comes a penis that plants an egg. And that egg takes over your body and your soul and violates you, and you are left a carcass at the end of it. One of the things that I also responded to this film was seeing Sigourney Weaver playing. The outsider in a community, the the black sheep of the family, as it were, something that I very much related to, she's the one who's trying to keep the family safe. You can't let in the outsiders. You have to protect the family. If they went outside, seal the door. We need to protect ourselves. That's the only way the family is going to survive. And the thing that the Alien films, for me, resonate so deeply is that... You take the Ripley character, and because she saves a cat, she is a hero. If she didn't save that cat, she is a survivor. And that is the thing that I feel like a lot of the subsequent Alien films have missed out on, is that both in Alien and in Aliens, Ripley is not a survivor. She is a hero because she saves something that is vulnerable, that she chooses to put herself in danger to save another entity. And the fact that it was the family pet, most people were like, why are you going back for the fucking cat? Like, let the cat die, get off the ship. But for Ripley, the thing that made her the best family member and the one who merited survival was that The cat is family, and if I can save any of us, I'm going to do it, even if it costs me my life. And that's what makes her a hero. And what James Cameron so brilliantly did in the sequel is that he made that cat a little girl, and then all of the metaphors of motherhood that are suggested in the first film come to full fruition with mother protecting children versus mother protecting child. And that war is so impactful and so powerful because it is the simple basic instincts that we saw perverted in the first film brought to wonderful fruition in the second film. That's why those two films speak to each other so beautifully.
2: And is the the monster, the ca- creature in that film, uniquely terrifying? I mean, also the text, be- the subtext becomes super overt in the second film.
3: Yes. Well, the, you know, I, I think what is so terrifying about that film, particularly as we're, we're getting into a time right now, and I hope this bears wonderful fruit in the horror genre, we are able to articulate now in a way that we we might not have been Uh, a couple of years ago, the horrors of male oppression in a way that is insidious in our society. And so H.R. Giger, or Ridley Scott seeing the H.R. Giger illustration of the big penis-headed monster, may not have said, that looks like a giant cock on a man chasing people around and perverting them and consuming them, but... He got that it was scary, he got that it was threatening, and for so many women, now you're hearing the tales of people who are, you know, men who whip out their dicks to control and terrorize. For Ridley Scott to put a big dick on the head of a giant man and have that be your monster is pretty deep and interesting to unpack, particularly now. Whether he was doing it consciously or not. Whether he's doing well, it, it doesn't matter if, if he was doing it unconsciously. He still did it, and he still understood that it was terrifying, and he may not have known just why, but H.R. Giger knew that penises are terrifying, vaginas are alien, and... These are our bodies, and these are things that we have to deal with and demystify, otherwise our society is always going to be afraid of penises and vaginas, and they shouldn't.
2: <laughs> How much of horror, and particularly certain types of horror, seems to be dealing problems with the body, physicality? Mm.
3: David Cronenberg created an entire genre of body dysmorphia horror, and one of the things that is so horrific about the Alien films is your body betrays you. Kane's body betrayed him. It hid a secret. It didn't tell him that he was in danger. His body felt like he could survive, but his body betrayed him. Ash betrayed him. And with Cronenberg's story, it is about your body betraying you in some capacity. You look at The Brood, and The Brood is a a wonderful film about psychological manifestation of internal horrors. One of his most insightful films, I think, in terms of what it is to be a human being, you have a woman filled with such mad rage at her place that she manifests rage babies that go out and do her bidding. It evolved from an exploration of, if you're so angry, can you manifest sores over your body that are the representation of your internal psychological turmoil? And what happens if you manifest this in the form of a child who will kill your enemies? what a strange wish fulfillment that is. Scanners, our, our brains are betraying us because we can't control the input that is coming into our minds. And that is something that's incredibly relatable. You take someone being in a room and hearing conversations from a variety of sources and how maddening and oppressive that can be and then you multiply that by a factor of a thousand and you can never shut them off. Even when you're alone, you can hear them bleeding through. That will drive you mad. And there are people who feel that power is something that they should be able to control or weaponize and then you become the villain because of something strange that's happening with your body that you can't control. So, really, I I feel like that is the great gift and brilliance of Cronenberg's horror and approach to horror is that it is always about our own selves betraying our own selves.
2: Speaking of great films or interesting films, let's talk about The Howling and not just because- That's another
3: psychological Robert
2: film. Robert Picardo as a Manson werewolf. <laughs> 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 Eddie Quist. Uh, The Howling is, it's so
3: interesting to juxtapose The Howling and American Werewolf in London as werewolf films, both of which are brilliant films. I couldn't tell you which one I love more, because I love them both for entirely different reasons. The howling appeals to the psychological obsessive in me. I love that you have D. Wallace Stone's character Karen who is this investigative journalist looking into a strange series of murders only to be traumatized unexpectedly by the killer and needing to recoup from that trauma in the belly that created that killer was such a fantastic, simple horror device that John Sayles executed so beautifully and pulled in all of the issues of what is our primal self, what is our hopeful higher self, and once again, looking at the howling and looking at this community that was created as a kind of reaction to est movements in in the 70s of, of those personal growth movements, and that we need to peer To our our baser selves to understand who we are as human beings, and that's not a scary thing. Taking those motivations and extrapolating them into a horror story where a woman is afraid that something, once again, inside her, she's been infected, it's inside her, she can't stop it, she knows it's there, and the madness of, am I crazy? Or is the world really turning into something that I never expected? And is always in a horror film such great fodder for a character's grief and isolation? What was so fascinating about the howling, looking at it through the prison of where we are now, and the argument that these people are trying to access their baser, more primal selves, and that is a happy, healthy thing. I think there is a movement in this country that is saying to themselves, it is okay to access your baser self, your racist self, your hateful self, because that is what's going to protect you and allow you to survive. We understand now psychologically because of science that conservative minds think differently than progressive minds. Conservative minds have a much greater fear center than progressive minds. So when they react to something, they are defaulting to a fear reaction where progressives are defaulting to a hope reaction. And when you are afraid of everything, you are going to act out and you are going to make the situation worse. And so to take Werewolfism, lycanthropy, into a psychological setting and say that this is something that could possibly be in all of us and you can't control it. It's going to come out and it's going to fuck you over. And so, can we say fuck on AMC? Are they going to bleep me or should I not? I, I should not say the idea that. These horror elements are in all of us. They just need a little push or a little activation, and we can each be the own, our own villain in our story. That's something that's also very fascinating about the werewolf genre, and 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 that is well explored in a completely different way in American Werewolf in, in London because it it doesn't go to the psychological places as much as it goes to the emotional places of loss and searching for identity as a young man and how you are going to create a world for yourself moving forward after grief. A lot of similar issues in The Howling, but The Howling goes to a much more insidious place with the betrayal of Karen's husband and him becoming a werewolf and submitting to the thing that she's fighting against. And so we see a woman at the center of this story who's fighting the worst parts of herself because she knows that they're looking for hope, looking to do the right thing, and looking to defeat the bad in all of us. Her husband loses that battle And she wins it, even if it costs her her life. And you look at John Sayles, who wrote the script, and you think, what's John Sayles, this amazing, articulate writer doing a werewolf movie? Then you see that werewolf movie and you say, because it is so thoughtful and powerful, and he found something to explore in that story that hadn't been as thoroughly explored before. And so The Howling, for me, is one of the greatest werewolf movies that has been made because of all of the levels that it's playing with.
2: Speaking of that conservative, I mean, Stephen King is of course famously wrote that horror ultimately is a conservative genre that it sort of reinforces the status quo, even though King himself is- Very liberal. Very liberal, yeah. Is that true or is-
3: There is an aspect to what Stephen King says in terms of how horror is a moralizing genre. And a conservative genre. There is punishment for breaking the deadly sins. We see the tropes, uh, whether it's sex or drugs or bad behavior of any kind, those are the characters in horror movies that we're looking forward to seeing drop first, while we fight and hope for the righteous to survive the night. So I I do think that there is something very conservative and moralizing about the horror genre on one hand, but then you look at the survivors of horror films, and they are mostly women. And so I I would say that horror is just as much a feminist genre, more so than a conservative genre, because despite all of those punitive aspects of a horror story, a woman survives because she was resourceful, because she was smart, because she depended on herself, and she was able to get herself out of the mess. The women in these stories mostly survive because they got themselves out of it. There's rarely the cavalry. They end up chopping off the head of the bad guy or planting a machete in their head. And I would say, for me, interpreting the genre, I would say that is a triumph of the oppressed.
2: Which is interesting also because I think there's this perception of horror as being uh, essentially misogynist. Genre, so which I think may have be actually been, it's been referenced several times the Siskel and Ebert show that they did in slasher films. Yeah, seems to have just really what have a left a couple huge, of dicks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> left a huge bar, and they didn't even get it right either. Except.
3: And they gave Betsy Palmer's address out so people could complain to her about Friday the 13th. They were dicks, that's that's asinine. Yep. What a couple of assholes!
2: <laughs> well, they're dead now, yeah. <laughs> So there. I want to ask you, actually, about some of the... We have these subgenres that show slip into six different things. So if I mentioned one of them, like if you can think of some cool films that may have been in that and what you liked about them. For instance... uh, Ghosts. Is there any like particularly good ghost stories that come to mind? There
3: are so many fantastic ghost films and ghost-oriented horror films out there. The first one that leaps to mind is The Haunting by Robert Wise. And what's so incredible about that film is that you don't see a single ghost. It is all done with sound design, and it is one of the most terrifying films because of sound design and because of Wise's instinct to focus on the faces of those being terrified because that is what you're relating to and that is what is informing your emotion, not the ghosts and the monsters. What they failed to realize in the remake is what you don't see is more terrifying than what you do see. And then you take a a film like The Haunting, which is perhaps a a very classic ghost story, and then you look at how the, the genre was subverted by the others and take Taking in the new wave of ghost stories, whether it's The Sixth Sense and what M. Night Shyamalan has been doing with his you know, high concept twists, he essentially was telling a ghost story that we didn't know was a ghost story until the twist was revealed. Similarly with The Others, The Others I found a much more dynamic and terrifying film because ultimately it was about a mother who was driven mad by isolation and murdered her own children and herself and then had to deal with that and had ghosts appear to tell her that she had to deal with that. And the the sudden release of the terror at the end when she, she realized her role and what she had done to her family because of the isolation, it took the ghost story to such an intimate place and made it so much more visceral because you didn't know the ghosts were dead. And that's something that Sixth Sense has done so well. I'm trying to think of, like, other ghost stories that have...
2: Oh, uh, Tickled my fancy. Let's see, Poltergeist. Let's oh,
3: Poltergeist. Poltergeist is a perfect film. That was another film that I had read a lot about in Cinefantastique and Fangoria and had seen pictures of all the different sequences. Yet when I went to see Poltergeist and I was sitting in the theater and Zelda Rubinstein came out and said, this house is clean, I bought it. I had seen pictures of Jo Beth Williams in the pool with skeletons, and I just thought, oh, they must have cut it out because this story was so well told that I wasn't missing anything. And then the ghost is is pulling up her shirt and spinning her across the the ceiling, and it just keeps going from there. And it, it really is exemplary in what works about a Steven Spielberg film and what a genre master Steven Spielberg is because he takes a high-concept story... And he sticks all of these grounded emotional hooks in it and pulls it to the ground so that you are looking at a family struggling with strangeness, struggling with a loss, struggling with a teenager who doesn't want to connect with them. And you see parents who are intensely likable. They're pot smokers, they're silly, they're a ton of fun, and their reaction to everything around them was so authentic that it created the reality that told the audience, this is real, this is accessible. Jo Beth Williams is brilliant in that film because she is every mother that we remember from that era who was cool and cared about her kids and would fight whatever entity came her way to get her children back. So poltergeist was a wonderful metaphor for families fighting to survive intact oppressive forces and you look at The Shining which is a different kind of ghost story about a different kind of family experience and you see uh, you know talking about Kubrick Shining not King Shining because they are different what was so effective for me watching that as a child of a, an abusive parent to relate to the supernatural saving you from an oppressive situation and being able to call out to unexpected allies who will save you. And what was most powerful for me in that film was Shelley Duvall's arc as an oppressed mother who then realizes that she has to fight for her child against the madness of her husband, against the isolation of their environment. You see how family is a great source for horror storytelling because family is very intimate, family is very close to us, and family is very dangerous if you're in the wrong family.
2: I need to ask you about vampires. Oh, yes. At this point the vampire subgenre seems fallow, I guess it's safe to say, but Just you wait. it goes up <laughs> it goes up and down, right? Yes. So
3: one of the things that I loved about vampirism, once again, it is a body horror. And it is an infection that will take away your humanity. So much of these stories are about the fear of losing our humanity. What happens when a force greater than ourselves takes over and controls us whether it's vampirism lycanthropy or you know demonic possession there's something terrifying about the seduction of something so alien and and so much of the vampire story is, is sexualized it is through a kiss, through a bite, through penetration, insemination, for lack of a better word, of, of vampirism. So one of the things that has been so fascinating about the evolution of vampires, going from literature, obscure vampirisms, whether it's Sheridan Fanu or your Bram Stoker or even Pierce by Shelley, people were exploring vampirism as a way to allow yourself to be a little more primal, uh, a little more monstrous. And the sexual equivalency of that is profound because, in heightened passion, we are a little less ourselves, we are a, a little more animalistic, and we lose our civility for passion. And vampirism, which has, has come dressed up in elegance, and it has come dirty and gritty. There's been so many different varieties of vampire tales. If you look at how vampirism evolved from Anne Rice and how she... She didn't domesticate vampires. I feel like the Twilight movies domesticated vampires. What Anne Rice did with vampirism is that she celebrated it and allowed you to embrace it and allowed you to acknowledge that it is okay to evolve into something that is greater than what you once were. You just have to know who you are when you're going through that evolutionary process. I look at Fright Night as a fantastic vampire film from my youth that took all of the genre's instincts and then brought them to something almost Spielbergian with the the boy next door. So Fright Night was really, in my mind, so part of the Spielberg summer experience of the 80s, and I believe Fright Night came out in the summer of 85. And felt like a summer movie and had all of the adventure because it had a lot of similarities with what Spielberg was doing, looking at a family unit that was struggling, a mother and a son who were alone by themselves, and what happens with sexual evolution and what happens when you are becoming more of a sexual creature and, and young pubescent boys being hives of hormones. And how is that different than what drives a vampire? And looking at the difference between an old monster and a young monster, a young sexual monster, was was an interesting parallel.
2: Yeah, there's this sexually confident uh, older male, basically, next door, so he's sweeping in and stealing your girlfriend. Right. (laughs)
3: and how do you compete with that so fright night was was kind of a great classic vampire film and then we get into the twilight films and then there's a little bit of true blood trying to pull back some of the domesticity of the twilight films where you know vampires are nice and they're families and everybody wants to be good and and you don't have to fear them which was a a defanging of of the genre in many ways Uh, and about something completely different than vampirism. But I'm excited to see what's going to happen with the new Vampire Chronicles series based on the Anne Rice books because so many vampire stories have borrowed so heavily from what Anne Rice did in those books that I'm excited to see how that series will reclaim those elements that have been so well-trodden and also subvert them and elevate them in a way that recreates vampirism for a brand new generation.
2: Demonic possession movies, which of course includes things like The Exorcist and uh, Possessions and whatever else. What comes to mind if you think
3: about those? One of my one of my favorite possession films was The Manitou. Is The Manitou, and it's it's not a good film, but it was my first exposure to the genre because I hadn't seen The Exorcist yet. In the film, there is a woman who has a small bump on her back, which then grows to be an ancient demon. <laughs> <laughs> so she has a hunchback, it erupts, and, and chaos ensues. But what is fascinating about the possession genre of horror films is so inextricably linked to the body dysmorphia horror genre that Cronenberg has cultivated because it is your body betraying you. It's you can't trust yourself. That's the most horrific aspect of a possession story is that you are not in control. Your loved one is not... Who you assumed they were. And the possession uh, genre, depending on how big that umbrella is, does that encompass the Stepford Wives? Does that encompass Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Anything that takes away your control of your humanity feels like it is a possession storyline. It is, once again, in, in horror films, if you can't even trust yourself, that's the most terrifying thing and and we saw that to wonderful effect in both of the evil dead films you see in the first evil dead a much more sober horror oriented approach to the possession storyline but in evil dead 2 that is so wildly comedic and absurd that it takes all of the, the, the sobriety of possession storytelling that we witnessed in the first film and throws it out the window for one of the funniest horror films ever made.
2: Did you see, um, let's see, 30 Days of Night? Yes. Oh, yeah. What do you think of
3: that? 30 Days of Night is another wonderful twist in vampire movies. As David Slade is quoted, who directed a Twilight film and directed 30 Days of Night, is that he's directed one vampire film. And 30 Days of Night is a vampire film. The Twilight movies, I don't think, are... In my mind, I don't quantify them as, as vampire films. What I loved about 30 Days of Night, not only David Slade's fantastic direction and the way he builds a horror story, but the idea of this town that is going to be dark for 30 days and the vampires will reign during that time was such a great unexpected subversion of the rules of vampirism vampires, you know, unless you're Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie Don't usually go out in daylight and if you're trapped in a town for 30 days of night, chances are you're not going to survive because the whole aspect of a vampire story, almost all of the films hinge on being safe by sunrise and the vampire not realizing that he had gotten too deep into his pursuit to, to know that the sun was rising and that was their ultimate death. So, 30 Days of Night took the safety mechanism of a vampire film and threw it out the window and said good luck. Um,
2: Stephen Isles is an old friend of mine, actually, from DC, so he used to hang out a lot.
3: I would love to see more adaptations. I I wish that film had done better so we could see the further adventures, because that comic book series goes to really interesting places after that. And you're still working with David Slade? Yeah, I, I David Slade did Hannibal, and he did American Gods, and I am sure we are going to be getting back into bed together, because there's there's an interesting, it's interesting uh, working with David, because we come at horror from two completely different directions, both aesthetically driven, and he's got a fantastic eye, but we are, he is a little straight guy, and I'm a big gay man, and we come at storytelling from complementary angles, and when we we're, we work together. I see things that I would have never have thought of, and I see images that I would have never have conjured, and David is a fantastic collaborator. See.
2: Oh, I'm trying to think of another keystone of the uh, vampire genre, Let the Right One In. Ah,
3: uh, Let the Right One In has perhaps my favorite single shot in horror films, and you could probably guess what it is. It is Struck at vampirism and the pain of loneliness from a different angle, which was that of a small bullied boy. What was beautiful about that story is that a monster comes to the rescue when humanity fails, this young man, and who could blame him for choosing the monster when humanity was so horrible? Swimming pool, right? The swimming pool is so masterful. The t- t- t-
2: It gives me such joy, (laughs) that shot. Actually, I should ask you to speak at least a little bit about the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh,
3: yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street was an epiphany for me when I saw it because I absolutely adored the melding of the fantasy genre with the horror genre so wonderfully woven together. The idea that you're not safe when you sleep is an old adage that we, you know, audiences first discovered in the 50s when they were watching the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and they get you when you sleep. That idea of when you are the most vulnerable is when he gets you. Using your dreams and your wants and your wishes against you, using your fears against you, once again, it is that insidious, infectious horror that gets inside you, and you can't stop it was such a mind bender and actually my partner now is so haunted by the elm street movies i can't watch them when he's around him he like i had to put away my freddy Kruger action figures that he's he's completely traumatized but for me it was freddy jason and michael myers those were the anti-heroes of my childhood and what i loved about where Wes Craven took the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is outside of reality. One of the things that was always frustrating to me as a first consumer of entertainment was everybody, at least in my home, painted within the lines. The best actors uh, revered in the house that I grew up in were Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson. And so anything that was even remotely outside of reality was framed as bullshit that it had to be within reality or it was almost a cheat that you broke reality and made up something so you didn't apply the rules of storytelling in a contained way. And what Wes Craven did with Nightmare on Elm Street, he said, there are no rules. This guy gets inside your head and he will make whatever extravagant images that I can come up with a horror reality and I love the indulgence of the Elm Street series that was one of the things that was most fun and it also is a series that had an interesting progression you look at the original and that tale a relatively simply told story in the horror genre but with a fantastic high concept. Then you get into episode two, Freddy's Revenge. Why the first one wasn't revenge, I don't know, because it seems like that's just what he does. But the second one was all about homosexual panic in this strange way. And I remember watching it as a kid. You know, going through my own sexual awakening and seeing a student go to a leather club and a instructor strapping him to the faucets in the shower to whip him. And I knew that we had left West Cravenland and had gone someplace completely different, but I was intrigued and I thought the cast was actually quite good, but... Boy, was it a strange story, primarily about sexual awakening. So it took the elements of the first film and turned it into hormonal horror. And the third film brought everything back with Dream Warriors, which is one of my favorites of the series and gave it an adventure and authenticity. And Wes Craven didn't direct it, but he wrote it, and brought those characters back, brought Heather Langenkamp and Patricia Arquette, who is wonderful in the film, Craig Wasson. There's a great cast in Dream Warriors, and it gives you the wonderful fantasy life of a variety of lost kids who are fighting a monster that their parents created. Uh, So Dream Warriors... I think was the height of the series. Dream Master was a really effective film. Rennie Harlan directed the hell out of it. It was gorgeous. And then there's Dream Child. And then Freddy's Dead. And all the way up to Freddy vs. Jason. The Freddy vs. Jason was, for me, where the genre started to to slip a little bit because they, they kept on forgetting that... What made these films so appealing is that the characters and the young cast were actually all good kids. Everybody in the first Elm Street, they were good kids. The second Elm Street, they were good kids. The third Elm Street, they were good kids. When we got into Freddy vs. Jason, the kids were assholes and pot smokers and pornographers and just obnoxious adolescence. And I think one of the things that the horror genre I would love to see a return to in the horror genre is that you don't have to be an asshole to enjoy someone dying.
2: <laughs> I suppose they did that largely to try to um, foster more identification with the uh, killer uh, in some ways, right?
3: That was an effect, certainly, because I, I think the the goal was... It's upsetting to see people that you like die and it's more fun to see people that you don't like die, so why don't we have more people that you don't like in these films? And we're supposed to not want them to die.
2: Usually you want likable protagonists, otherwise what's the point, right? right?
3: Don't identify with the killer. The killer is the villain.
2: Is there such thing as too much backstory?
3: In, in horror genre, there's a lot of reliance on backstory because usually some mystery has happened before the credits or some history of a character's past that makes them a suspect. So there's a lot of backstory. I, I feel like with backstory, it's you should use as much backstory as your story demands. And I love playing with structure and jumping around a person's life to tell a tale. So I'm, I'm not afraid of backstory. I don't think backstory is... I haven't identified a film where I was like, oh, Them and that backstory.
2: Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. I would argue
3: about the prequels, because I've watched them recently. And one of the things that's interesting about the prequels is that the actual story of the prequels and the arcs and the ideas are really sound. And they're just not told in an enticing way. But I would argue that you could have made an interesting story. They just... Didn't. <laughs> is Frankenstein a zombie? Frankenstein is, well, Frankenstein's monster is a zombie. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, yes, I, I think Frankenstein created the genre of zombies in film, and then George Romero extrapolated from those themes something much more subversive and much more penetrative in in American culture. And I would, for me, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead film is one of my favorite horror films of all time. I think it is a political allegory. I think he was saying things that were so insightful about the classism in America that when you look at zombies in a mall and the traditional uh, zombie film tropes, He is masterfully executing all of those horror elements in a way that brings it right to a social justice scenario, particularly that opening when in the ghettos all of the poor are keeping their loved ones hidden away from the rest of the world because they know that they will kill them. And there's something so fascinating that that film opens with a... A black community and a black woman who is trying to protect her black man husband from the military because she knows that they're likely to kill him whether he's a zombie or not. And that was something that was so profound in that film and really set the table for social commentary in a way that blew my mind as a kid because I realized I was watching a political story about the race and class system in America not a zombie film and that's why i think that dawn of the dead transcends the horror genre as something that is so powerful and important in terms of how america operates and how america treats those who they believe are dead or not
2: alive is it safe to say that Frankenstein is more about a, a European, essentially, sensibility, about you know, fears of its time?
3: I would say yes. I would say that Frankenstein is it does have a certain European sensibility. It was informed by German expressionism. All of universal horror was informed by the German expressionist movement in in cinema. So Frankenstein as a European zombie film, one that was mainly about the white, straight male protagonist who is trying to demonstrate that he is more powerful than God. And the beginning of the patriarchy's hold over not just people but life and death was something that was reflective of what was happening when Mary Shelley first wrote it and certainly as those filmmakers were migrating from European countries to America and everything that was happening with the first two world wars, there is a sense of, can we recover what is lost? Can we bring back what has been taken from us by powers that are greater than us? And so for a man wanting to reclaim a body that was taken by death, feels like, on one hand, such arrogance, and then on the other hand, it's how do I survive this world intact if I can't come to terms with the extent of my power.
2: Bride of Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Pretorius, is it a same-sex relationship where they're creating life without a female involved in the process?
3: Well, I think that's the what's so interesting about Bride of Frankenstein and the approach to finding a mate. I mean, all that film was about finding a mate for the monster. So even though it's a monster, even though it is a dead thing back from the grave, it certainly deserves to get laid as a privilege of white male dominance. That unpacking of a woman who, when she was alive, was bright and had a future and a point of view, and then in death is forced into a marriage that she initially rejects and is repelled by. She's repelled by herself and repulsed by herself and then is forced by the white men in the scenario to become a dead order bride. And there's something, you know, it's hard not to see the Bride of Frankenstein through a feminist perspective of even in death, they will try to get you and control you and tell you how to live.
1: Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial-free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series, A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code Shutterpod. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayenga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflet, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of First Publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut.